0: Everybody out there has a superpower. You need to use your superpower so that people look at you and say, that guy is the best at X or Y or Z. Because that's gonna start to build that trust. That's gonna that's going to allow people to start to think, he's got some competency. And it doesn't have to, again, it doesn't have to be the same competency I have or anybody else has. Figure out your superpower and show it off. Let people think, this guy is amazing at this thing. Um, because it really will change their perspective when you, regardless of what that thing might
1: be. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right, guys, today we have Jay Scott on the show. And Jay Scott is someone who has rehabbed over $150 million of properties, written over five books, been on the bigger pocket podcast more times than you can count, including writing the book, The Book on Flipping. He's got about a thousand units under his ownership with the multifamily stuff that he's doing. He's a tech guy. He's scaling. He's coaching. He's got presence on social media. It's insane what this man is doing and what he can do, um, mostly because of his mindset on who, not how. But take us into it today, Jay. What is the craziest real estate transaction or experience you've faced so far?
0: Well, it's funny. I had to think about this because I, I kind of live my life trying to avoid craziness. Um, it, it's kind of been my mantra. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty conservative guy, conservative investor. Um, and I, I try not to get myself in situations where crazy things happen, uh, but if I had to think of one, there was a deal that I did back in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, back in, I think it was like 2013, and I remember we picked up this house really, really cheap, like uh, much cheaper than, than it should have been, and I, that always scares me a little bit because you wonder like what's going on, and you figure, okay, I'll get in there, and I'll figure out what that what the issue was, so getting to the house, and, and I'm doing my inspections. We purchased the house and nothing standing out, like still can't figure out why this thing is, is, is so cheap. And a uh, couple days after we bought it, I'm out at the property and I'm, I'm walking around the outside. Neighbor comes up to me and, and basically says, oh my God, I'm so glad you bought this house. It was about time somebody bought this. I uh, just didn't think anybody was ever going to, I didn't think we would ever have any neighbors again. And I'm like a little bit curious, didn't know what he was talking about. And I didn't want to just ask because I figured it, it sounded dumb to just ask, what are you talking about? Um, so I just kept listening and then he made it sound like something bad had happened. And so, uh, go inside and jump on my computer. I go home, I jump on my computer and I do a search, um, for like that address. And it took a little while cause that address specifically didn't come up, but ultimately I, I find out that that house was the site of a triple murder suicide. Um, basically a police officer killed his family. And, and then uh actually not, not suicide. He he killed his family. He shot himself. He didn't kill himself, um, ended up going on trial. And that house sat empty for a couple of years before I bought it. And so, yeah, that was, uh that was, I had no idea when I bought the house, it ended up being a great rental, um, but not sure I would have bought it had I known that at the time, um, but had no idea. Oh my word.
1: So when you go to rent it out in the state, Wisconsin, was there a required to disclose that to your tenants?
0: Nope, there was no requirement that they disclose it to me as a buyer. There was no requirement that I disclose it to my tenants or that I disclose it when I go to resell it. Um, and so uh, didn't disclose it to to the, the, the tenants, did disclose it when we went and resold it a couple years later.
1: Yeah, very, very interesting. Well, I'm glad you lived in a state where that wasn't required, uh, probably saved you a little bit. That's awesome. So I want to dive right into some things that we don't get to talk about as often with some of our guests. And and so I want to dive right into the talking about raising of capital. You had mentioned pre-show that you've raised $30 million of capital last year. Can you take some of the lessons that you've learned in your 15 years of real estate and distill it? If someone's getting started now and they wanted to jump to a raising capital approach to real estate, what would be the steps to take?
0: Yeah, so when I think about raising capital, uh, we all have this idea of what what a funnel is, a marketing funnel, and basically you get leads into the top of the funnel. That's where all your potential customers are, and you nourish them for a while, and and the bottom of the funnel is where they come out, and hopefully you convert them to to whatever you want them to buy. Uh, Raising money is very similar. Uh, We have uh, this big funnel, and the way I like to think of it is the top of the funnel is your brand. The top of the funnel is where people see you, they hear about you, they learn about what you're doing, and they think, hmm, that's interesting. I'm willing to listen to that person uh, to see if maybe they have an investment that they might be able to convince me to invest in, or maybe I can invest my money in them. They're not convinced, but they, they have enough, uh, enough exposure to you that they say, I'm willing to listen to that person's pitch. Um, you get them added to your, your email list, your marketing list, whatever it is. And then you're, they're in your funnel. And then to be a successful capital raiser, the key is the bottom of the funnel is trust. And everything you're doing from the day they enter the top of that funnel is building trust, getting them to think that you are the person that they are willing to take their hard-earned money and they're willing to hand it to in returns, or in, in the hopes of a of return of profit, and so um, I'm not trying to convince them I have the best product. I'm not trying to convince them that I'm I'm the nicest guy in the world. I'm not trying to convince them um, of anything other than the fact that they can trust me with their money, that I am somebody that will be a good steward of their investment, and so the whole purpose of that funnel. And this can take weeks. This can take months. I've had investors where literally they're in my funnel for years sole purpose of my funnel is to build trust. And I do that through communication. I do that through education. I do that through uh, personalized one-on-one. I, I invite people to jump on a zoom call with me and learn about what we're doing. Ask about me, ask about my family, ask about my team, uh, because building trust, it's, it's a lot tougher to build trust for the purpose of somebody giving you their money to invest $50,000, a hundred thousand dollars even a million dollars than it is to get them to purchase a hundred dollar course or a $2,000 course or whatever it is. And so for me, like the top of that funnel is is the brand. I've spent 15 years building a brand, kind of getting my name out there, building a reputation. And then once they get into that funnel, everything I do from there on out is, is trying to build trust with them so that one day they're gonna come to me and they're gonna say, hey, I'm willing to hand over 50,000, 100,000, $200,000 uh, and trust you to invest that for me.
1: One of our recent podcast guests said that trust is a series of small promises made and kept. How would you define trust and what are the ways in that funnel that you're building it?
0: Yeah, I I think that's a a great definition. And and yes, uh, basically my biggest, um, the biggest thing that I have in my life, in my professional life is my reputation. I know that the day I do a single thing to compromise my reputation, if you could go on the internet and um, find out that I screwed one person, or I made a really bad decision, a stupid decision on one deal, that's going to blow up my business. That's basically going to send the message that maybe I can trust this guy sometimes, but not all the time. Or maybe I can trust him with some decisions, but not all decisions. To be a good capital raiser, to be a, a good steward of somebody else's money, you need to be trustworthy all the time. And so that whole idea of little promises that you deliver on every time it's consistency. You need to deliver every time. And you can't have that one bad mistake. You can't have that one stupid thing you do. Um, You really, you just need to be consistently trustworthy and and, and build that over time. Um, But for me, I'd say the biggest thing um, based on my personality, the biggest thing that's kind of helped me um, build trust with my audience Is and I know this kind of goes against the conventional wisdom, but I'm not scared to be the smartest guy in the room. Now, when I'm going to learn, if I'm going someplace because I want to learn or I want to improve or I want to pick up a skill that I I didn't have, yeah, I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room because I want to learn something. But when I'm in the room with people who will potentially invest with me, I want to be the smartest guy in the room. I want them to look at me as the expert. I want them, if somebody asks a question, I want all heads to turn to me to see what my answer is gonna be because they trust I know more about this topic than anybody else in that room. And so for me, a lot of what I've done over the last 15 years is, one, build up my knowledge base, build up my credentials, um, and then prove to people that I know what I'm talking about, prove to people that I know more than anybody else out there, or hopefully most other people out there when it comes to to anything related to investing their money.
1: I want to go crazy deep in this. I am a lover of sales and sales process. And one of the things you said early on is that you're – selling them on the idea that you're not the best option as far as returns go you're more the best option for security or maybe for other reasons so talk to us like if a new investor is trying to raise money and they're not offering the best returns like what is it that they're offering and and how should they because i mean sales is generally a persuasive thing and persuasion is usually accomplished by you know the promise of great returns so talk to us maybe through the the more broad context of the sales process
0: Yeah. So so one, I I will never say that I'm not like potentially the person that can provide them the best returns. I might be able to, but here's the thing when it comes to returns. Um, If you and I do the same deal, there's a reasonable chance the returns that we'll be able to promise to our investors are going to be about the same. We're doing the same deal. If your returns are higher than mine, my returns are lower. Most likely that's a function of the fact that the deal that you're doing is a higher risk deal doesn't necessarily mean it's a worse deal. Um, it's just that the risk that investors have to take to do your deal is going to be higher. And typically, anytime you have higher risk, what are you trading that for? You're trading that for the potential for higher returns. Likewise, if I do a deal that's super low risk, I'm probably only going to be able to provide low returns. But my investors are going to be okay with that because, again, what they're trading off in, in terms of low risk is low returns. So we often talk about the fact that risk and return are, are intricately uh, entwined. And so as risk goes up, returns go up or potential returns go up. As risk goes down, potential returns go down. Um, so my goal as somebody who's investing some other person's money, or even if, if I'm investing my own money and I invest my own money in my deals, um, isn't necessarily to say I'm going to go for the best returns because that's going to be higher risk or then I'm going to go for the lowest risk because that's going to be lower returns. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to optimize the two. And in this business, we have this term called risk adjusted returns. And that means the returns that you're going to generate based on the, uh, uh, the, the, Prospective amount of risk that you're taking for that particular deal. And what I'm looking to do is generate the highest amount of returns for the lowest amount of risk. And there's some optimal place uh, for every deal where you can kind of optimize for the returns while also minimizing the risk. And, And it's figuring out how to do that that's the key to being successful in this business. And some of the ways we do that are we do deals that we're experts in. So if I were to go do a deal, if I were going to go do a new construction project um, on a warehouse, I was going to go build a warehouse for Amazon. uh, My risk-adjusted returns aren't going to be lower than somebody that's done that 100 times. They're going to have lower risk than I am because they know more than I do. They have more resources than I do. They have more connections than I do. They probably have more economies of scale than I do. So just their knowledge in and of itself is going gonna, is gonna to decrease the risk that you're taking. So if somebody wants to come and invest with me in a new construction warehouse, I'm going to say, don't invest with me because my risk adjusted returns aren't going to be as good as somebody that does that. But I know a hell of a lot about multifamily investing. I know a hell of a lot about new construction, multifamily value, add multifamily. So somebody that comes and, and wants to invest with me, they're going to get the same res- returns as if they invested with somebody else. But if I know that space better, If I can mitigate risk better, if I have a better network of of contractors, a better network of lenders, a better network of property managers, a better network of whatever, you're going to have less risk investing with me than with them, even though we're doing the exact same deal. So the goal is always, again, not to minimize risk, not to maximize returns, but to optimize both by getting the best risk-adjusted returns you possibly can.
1: So your main let's say character trait that you want to show in the highest quantities is competence intelligence consistency those sorts of virtues and values talk to me how has becoming an author five-time author you know you're one of the most prolific responders in bigger pockets arena how has that one helped you with competence like becoming competent and then how has it helped you in attracting investors
0: so I'm a big believer that everybody kind of has to embrace their superpower. We're all great at something, but we're all great at different things. For me, the thing that I'm really great at that I found over the years is I'm really great at taking complex subjects and making them easy to understand for other people, basically breaking down complex subjects into simple, bite-sized pieces. And so for me, I utilize that superpower. I utilize my ability to take complex subjects and make it easy to understand. And I do that by writing books, by posting on the internet. I have a newsletter where literally every week, I'll write a a 1500 word article on some topic that probably nobody else is writing about in this space. Uh, I go on podcasts and I talk about topics that a lot of people don't talk about. I talk about the economy. I talk about um, uh, macroeconomics and business and scaling and and things that you don't hear a lot about in this business um, because it kind of separates me from everybody else. It sets me apart. And that's what I'm good at. And so as long as I focus on what I'm good at, people are going to see, okay, he's got a competency. Um, and they're going to think of me as he's an expert in X. And for me, it's that that X is I'm an expert at taking a complex subject and in writing or on a podcast, breaking that down into, into bite-sized pieces that are easy to understand. Everybody out there has a superpower. You need to use your superpower so that people look at you and say, that guy is the best at X or Y or Z, because that's going to start to build that trust. That's going to that's going to allow people to start to think he's got some competency and it doesn't have to, again, it doesn't have to be the same competency I have or anybody else has. Figure out your superpower and show it off. Let people think this guy is amazing at this thing, uh, because it really will change their perspective on you, regardless of what that thing might be.
1: Let's keep peeling the layers back on this onion. So you are a superstar at taking complex subjects and making them simplified. You're not saying you're a rock star, which you are at real estate. Like, are you personally separating those two things? Like when you're talking about your syndications that you're doing in all these huge apartment buildings, are you letting others do that so you can literally focus almost 100% of your time on complex simplification?
0: Well, and this is a whole separate topic. This is basically figuring out what you're good at and not good at and focusing your time and your attention and your efforts on the things that you're good at and then surrounding yourself with people that, that, that are good at all those things that you're not. And so we talked a little bit before this episode about the fact that when I started in this business, I came from the tech world. I, I spent most of my career at Microsoft. I was managing a big business for them. I was in doing tech and, and, and corporate and M&A. Um, and I got into real estate. I knew nothing about real estate. Literally bought my first house when I was 37 years old, had no idea what I was doing. And so I couldn't be the guy that went out there and managed the contractors. I couldn't be the guy that went out there and painted my own house. Couldn't be the guy that went out there and and picked out my own materials because I had no idea what I was doing to be successful. What I had to do was I had to focus on hiring people that were really good at those things, managing them. And that allowed me to scale the business quickly, but it also created a lot of overhead but that's the only way I knew to run my real estate business because I wasn't a real estate guy I wasn't a contractor I I, I my wife jokes I have an electrical engineering degree I'm the only electrical engineer in the world that probably can't change a light bulb <laughs> right and, and so so I was forced to focus on what I was good at and what I was good at was hiring people who were smarter than I am at whatever it was that needed to get done managing them building the business scaling the business putting in process Uh, putting in in place the systems and processes that allowed the business to grow. And that's what I did. And I've been doing that for 15 years. Now, have I learned Parts of the business, of course. So I've had to learn the construction side of the business. I've had to learn um, the operation side of the business. I've had to learn the, the supply chain side of the business and, and, and the vendor side of the business. Um, but I'm still not the best at any of those things. What I'm the best at is I'm the best at running the business and hiring people who are a lot smarter than I am to make sure that the things that are happening day-to-day are the things that we need to make money for ourselves and our investors.
1: I really want to keep going down this road what is the fastest way for somebody to find out the thing that they can specialize in
0: so number one it's going to be the thing that gets you excited uh my partner likes to say um when you when when the alarm goes off in the morning what's that task that's gonna like get you out of bed versus what's the task you might have to do that you're gonna hit the snooze button 12 times um and If the thing you have to do that day is the thing that's going to cause you to hit the snooze button 12 times, that's not the thing you want to be doing most days. You want to be focused on that thing that you're going to jump out of bed at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. or whatever time is early for you and say, okay, I'm ready and I'm excited to get this day going. And so for me, that's always been writing content or creating content. Um, I've always loved teaching. And so that's the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, What doesn't get me out of bed in the morning? Basically everything else doing the operations, the nitty-gritty managing contractors and, and the day-to-day stuff, that doesn't excite me. And so you have to start with, one, what is that thing that really gets you excited, that that really gets you out of bed and, and you say, I'm good at this, I enjoy doing this. Because at the end of the day, if, if you don't enjoy it, you're not gonna be able to keep it up for five or 10 or 30 years um, and, and build a career around it. And even if you could, you probably don't want to because you're just gonna waste five or 10 or 30 years. So number one is, is what do you enjoy? Two, what are you good at? Obviously, that's important. Um, There are lots of things that I would enjoy doing um, that I'd probably love being a male model. Um, (laughs) That's not not gonna work. Um, There are a lot of things I I would probably love doing day to day, but I'm just not good at them. And so I have to kind of cross those things off the list. So number two is what are those things that you're good at? Um, And then number three, what are those things that you can actually make money doing? What can you figure out how to monetize? And so you put those three things together, the things you enjoy, the things you're good at and the things you can monetize and you make a list and whatever fits in all three of those buckets, that's probably the thing you should be focused on. That's going to be your superpower. And again, for me, the thing I enjoy, the thing I'm good at and the thing I can make money off of is creating content and using that content to build trust, build relationships, raise money that I can then take and, and deploy into deals.
1: I love what you're saying because a lot of times I hear people say, well, I love real estate. And then they're also telling me they're burnt out serving clients. And it's like, well, I think we should be more specific here. Like real estate's a pretty broad term. Like there's a thousand things that you do within real estate. There's a lot of asset classes, let alone, like if you're in single family agency work, there's so many, you know, showing homes and so on and so forth. So I want to take a risk here and I want to ask the question. So you break, make hard things simple. Can you give us an example? Like let's take a hard, complex topic. And I want you to unpack your brain. Like what is the mechanisms? What's the logic path? What's happening in your brain to make that? Like, is there a template system maybe that can be created to make hard things simple?
0: I thought about this a lot. And what I think it is, and, and the, the commonality I've noticed amongst people that are really good at breaking down complex subjects um, is a, a level of empathy. They have a higher level of empathy than most other people. doesn't mean that they're, I, 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 it's not, that's not a judgment thing. Um, Some people have more empathy than others, but the reason why I think empathy is so important is because it allows you to do two things. Um, One, a lot of empathy helps you remember when you were in a situation where you didn't understand something. I'm, I think I'm really good at explaining things because I have no problem remembering those days when I knew nothing. I distinctly remember back when I walked through my first house and I had no idea. I had to put together a scope of work to figure out the rehab. And I'm just looking around. And I'm like, I don't even know where to start. And that's like seared in my brain. And so when I talk to somebody like I've, I've renovated, I've flipped 450 houses. We own a thousand units. Now I've written a book on estimating rehab costs. Um, when I talk to somebody who has, never walked a house and needs to learn how to estimate rehab costs, I remember what it's like to not understand that. And so for me, it's a lot easier to explain it coming from that perspective of I still remember not understanding it. Number two, the empathy really allows me to put my head into the same space as theirs. So listening to me talk to them um, is what I'm saying getting through. Um, And if it's not, how do I say it in a different way or a different way or a different way? I'll say it 10 different times if I have to, um, but really getting in their head and and trying to understand, do they get this or are they just nodding and agreeing with me because they feel like they're wasting my time? Um, And so I'm not scared to explain something 20 times. Like I wish we could do this podcast five more times because I promise you the fifth time we have this discussion. I'm going to be a lot better at it because I will have said something five different times. And each time I'll, I'll have watched your reaction, I'll have heard my words and I'll have realized, okay, I can improve on that. And the next time I'll do a better job and the next time I'll do a better job. And so I've done what 300, 400 podcasts over the last decade. Um, I'm so much better than I, I was a decade ago, a decade from now I'm going to be so much better because I'll be saying the same things that many more times. And so you can't be scared to, to, to really just, reiterate things and say things over and over. And, and, and yeah, for me, uh, it's just, it's the empathy. Remembering where I came from and, and trying to put my, my head into to theirs of what they're thinking right now while I'm talking to see if I'm getting through to them.
1: When you're thinking about teaching a subject, how often does your brain go to examples? How often does it go to analogies? How often does it go to more of a technical step-by-step? What sort of frequency do you shrink the problem and leave details out? Give us some context around those.
0: Yeah, this is where I'm. I'm. I know I have a lot of room to improve. Um, and all of us, whatever our superpower is, we always have room to improve. And I know I'm. I'm very much. I have an engineering degree. I think like an engineer. I'm. I'm, I'm geeky and detail oriented. And so, if you, if anybody's ever read any of my books, they know that it's not one of those motivational. Like uh, you're going to get excited and, and read the exciting stories and okay, I can make a billion dollars overnight. No, my books are, if, if you read them, you're going to realize they're like textbooks um, because that's how I think and that's how I write. And is that good or bad? Um, to some degree, it's really bad because if you look at the, the science, you look at the data, we learn best through hearing stories. Stories are, are literally the best way to convey a message. It's the best way to sell. It's the best way to convince or, um, or, or um, to change somebody's mind. And it's also a great way to teach. I'm not a good storyteller. So from that perspective, um, there's a lot of improvement that, that I can make by becoming a better storyteller. But by the same token... If you look at all the people that write books and teach in the real estate world these days, what do you hear? You hear 95% of it is motivational and fluff and, and rah, 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 and I'm different. And so again, for me, my superpower kind of sets me apart um, because I do this thing that very few people, few people do or can do, um, but it may not be optimal. And so uh, I'm constantly working on becoming a better storyteller at the same time that I'm I'm doing the things that are naturally good.
1: I want to go into this a lot. (laughs) Storytelling is- And and
0: Can I tell you something? I love this conversation and you actually have me like a little bit flustered because again, I've done 300 and some podcasts over the last 10 years every podcast i do it's the same questions where did you start tell me about estimating rehab costs tell me about this or that it's all the same you're asking questions that literally i've never been asked before and so i feel like i'm like for the first time in in a decade i'm like scared of the next question what if you ask me something i'm not like prepared for well i love this first of all feel
1: free like for those audience listening what he is giving us is just a, a set of gems so feel free to say hey I'm going to need more time on this one. Let's come back to this one. But thank you. Like your answers have been so incredibly articulate and you've given me the confidence to continue to dive in. I have a desire to become a much greater storyteller as well. So I would love to know what are the steps? Because I mean, you're a tech guy, you're a math guy, you're a process engineer, you're a writer. Like there are so many skills that don't normally reside in a single human being. So I know there's already been a lot of development you've done with yourself to get to where you are. And it's clear You understand what you want to add to yourself. You view that as possible and you're taking action. So walk us through so far. What is the process that you're going through to become a storyteller? What have been some of the wins and and losses that you've taken along the way?
0: So let me start with, and because I, I don't have a good answer to that, um, because I'm not good at it yet. I, I've, I've read a book or two on it, and so I can tell you kind of the more formulaic ways, but anybody can go out there and read a book on, on telling stories and, and probably learn more than I know in, in an hour. Um, but one of the big things that I've learned is, um, is that um, when you're telling a story, um, it, it's very much you need to relate to the other person's experience. Um, and you need to be talking to them in, in a language that they understand. And too often we assume that everybody is exactly like us. We assume that everybody learns like us. They assume everybody is motivated by the things that motivate us. They assume that everybody, um, is kind of the, the same person. Um, and, and I see this in the, in the, in the, uh, fundraising world all the time. I'll, I'll go and I'll sit in on a pitch with uh, with somebody that's doing a deal. They're looking for for funding and I'm considering investing and they're having a conversation with me and, and they ask me a question like, so what are you interested in? Do you care about cash flow? Do you care about this? Do you care about that? And I'll give them an answer. I'll tell them like what's going on in my life. And then they'll kind of give me a canned response. Um, and it's like, they didn't even hear what I said. Because the response that they're giving is they're answering the question that they think I should be asking Um, or or they're giving me the information they think I should want because that's the information they would want. And so I found too often in storytelling, we tell the story that we want to hear, the one that resonates with us without actually thinking about the story they want to hear might be completely different than the story we want to hear. I'm a tech guy, I'm a guy that's been in real estate for 15 years, I've got a decent amount of money. Um, and so if, if I'm going to try and sell you on an investment in my deal, um, using the same things that I would need to hear to invest in somebody else's deal, that's not going to appeal to you. I want tax benefits. Like I'm at the point in my career where I have a lot of income. I don't need the cash flow. I don't necessarily need the profits. I love the the tax benefits. I love the 10-year returns. Um, but if I tell that story and if, if everybody is like, I'm sitting here telling the story about Like, let's talk about why tax benefits are so important to me. And uh, last year I made X amount of dollars and I realized I was paying X hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes. And I realized that if I could defer those for 10 and people are looking at me like, well, that's not me. I'm not in that situation. Um, I need to tell the story that they care about. And the story they care about, my investors, is they're working a nine to five job that they absolutely hate and they want to get out of that job. And so if I put myself into their headspace, I haven't been there for 15 years, but as long as I can put myself in their headspace and say, okay, the story they need to hear is the one about how to get them out of that nine to five job, how to get enough money for their kids to go to college or their daughter to get married, whatever it is. If I can tell them that story, that's going to resonate with them. So the the first and most important thing is when you're telling stories, don't tell the stories that you want to hear that you would want somebody to tell you. Think about the story that's really going to resonate with them. Yeah. Um, and so for me, that's kind of been the biggest mind shift in this whole storytelling piece um, that, that's really helped me get better at it. Yeah,
1: and so the them, of course, in you know digital marketing speak, is your target client or your avatar. Mm-hmm. And that avatar, even though it's the avatar that, that gives money to you to fuel what you're trying to accomplish is maybe a distant, far away from the person that you are for the person that you were. Yep. So when you're thinking about your funnel, because you're talking about top of funnel is how you raise money. That funnels down to the type of people who are listening to you in your pitch decks for raising capital how much thought process is there and how much thought process would you want there to be? Are those the same thing for creating the avatar to which the story can be told? Cause this is a problem that I think about a lot, right? Because it's like, there's where I am, there's where I'm going and there's who I was. None of those are the same thing. And the person that I might be serving could be in any one of those spots. So we'd love to get your take on it.
0: And, and this has been another big shift for me. And, and I have an amazing business partner. Her name's Ashley Wilson. Um, she taught me this business four or five years ago, the multifamily business. And, and she's been instrumental in my success in multifamily. And um, she's gotten me to realize a few things. And, and this is probably the biggest. Um, for 10 years, up until a few years ago, I was pretty much on autopilot. Um, it seemed like what I did naturally was working really well. Going out there and teaching stuff, and writing articles, and answering questions on Bigger Pockets, writing books, all that stuff. It was just I never really had a plan. I never create. I never thought through this funnel. I never thought, okay, this is how I'm going to build my brand, and this is how I'm going to generate leads, and this is how I'm going to convert them to whatever an, an offer is. Um, it's just I just went out there and did completely what came naturally. And that was great. It allowed me over the last ten years to build a decent brand. We've sold five hundred thousand books. We've raised money. Um, um, like I, I've I've been in in this little world of, of real estate. I think I've been uh, pretty successful. Um, but it, it there was no thought that went into it. And then a few years ago, um, my my partner actually. Ashley actually, actually um, got me for the first time to really start thinking about that and thinking about that strategy. Um, and once she got me thinking about the strategy, what I realized was, yeah, what I was doing was working relatively well for for compared to most people, um, hmm. but it was really working very poorly compared to where we needed to be. And, and hmm. let me dig into that a little bit. So, as a capital raiser, the most important thing for me, in, in, in addition to raising as much capital as possible, um, is this thing called cost of capital. I want capital as cheap as possible. If I can find an investor that will give me money for a 15% return, that's great. But if I can find another investor that will give me money for a 10% return, that's much, much better because the, the, the 10% return means I can go find deals that aren't necessarily as good. 50%. Yeah. And yeah. And there's probably more money left over for me at the end if they're getting theirs um and so while raising capital for me was all about bringing in the most money uh actually got me thinking about the fact that cost of capital was actually the most important thing and got me thinking about how do we get our cost of capital down how do i go from those investors that are looking to get 15 or 17 or 19% a year to those investors who are happy getting 8 or 10 or 12% a year and what i realized was all the branding that I've done, all the brand that I've built, all the, 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 the name recognition that I have um, in my life has been in this small real estate industry. And real estate investors are a little bit different than the broader public out there. Yeah. Um, somebody that's a real estate investor that's going to invest in one of my deals, they know how much real estate generates in returns. They know that a multifamily deal, if they've been around the multifamily space at all, they know that typical returns are somewhere in the 14 to 16% compounded range or 18 to 20% average annual range, just to use those terms. Um, and so if they're going to invest in my deal, they're going to say, I need 20% average annual returns because that's what's typical in this, in this industry. And if you don't give it to me, I'll go to, to that guy over there who's doing the same thing you're doing, and he will give it to me. And so, basically, my options are: I give them twenty percent compounded, or I don't get that person as an investor. Well, then I realized that not everybody is, in, is a real estate investor. Not everybody thinks like that, and. I come from the tech world. So a couple of years ago, when I started raising money and started thinking about this, I said, you know, I need to expand my network. I need to, to find more investors. So I went out to some of my tech friends. And the first thing I said um, when, when I'm like talking to one of my tech friends, I remember the first conversation I had with a good friend of mine. I was like, hey, we're getting ready to do a deal. Do you want to invest diversify into real estate? He said, what do the returns look like? And I said, I can probably get you somewhere in the 18 to 20% average annual return. And he looked at me and he started laughing. And I I had no idea what that that laugh meant, but we we kind of kept going and we dug in. And what I realized was he was laughing at me because that to him sounded like a scam. 18 to 20% returns, he's a tech guy. He's making a ton of money from stock options and other things, but what's he doing with his money? He's putting in the stock market and if he's getting six, seven, 8%, he's thrilled. And when he hears 18, 19, 20% returns, all that's going through his head is, one, I'm scamming him, which he knew I wasn't because we're friends, or the risk is through the roof. And so in my mind, 18 19 20% annual returns is pretty typical, not higher risk than the stock market. It's just a different asset class, a little bit less liquid than, than, than the stock market. Um, but to him, that was a scam or that was ridiculously high risk. And so I said, Well, what if what if I had a deal that was 15% returns? He goes, That's still ridiculous. I said, Well, what if I had a deal that was 10 to 12% returns? He said, if you would have said 10 to 12%, I would have said, That sounds like a good thing to invest in. And what I realized was as I went to more and more tech people, I kept hearing the same thing that when, when I would tell them the returns were 18, 19, 20%, they were just like, "Yeah, okay, not interested. Like it was all too good to be true. And then I would start telling him, well, how about 15%, how about 12%? And the lower the returns got, the more interest I was getting because people weren't thinking this is too good to be true. People weren't thinking this is too high risk. And so what it made me realize was I had this very, again, going back to the telling of stories and we assume everybody's like us, I had this preconceived notion that everybody around me expected a certain level of return, that they understood the risks involved, what I didn't realize was most of the people out there, 98% of the people out there, I was dealing with the, the real estate investor to the 2%, 98% of the people out there um, that might consider investing in my deals, they'd be thrilled with 10 to 12% returns. And not only would they be thrilled with 10 to 12% returns, if I offered them more, it'll probably turn them off because they think I'm either scamming them or it's too high risk. And as soon as I, I kind of made that mental shift, what I realized was that's how I'm going to get my cost of capital down. I'm going to focus on a whole different class of investors and i'm going to not only get them for cheaper but i'm going to make them happier by doing it cheaper right
1: they're going to go to their friends and say hey i'm getting a better return
0: yeah yep and so since then a lot of our investors now are tech people a lot of our investors are professional people one of my partners was a professional athlete he was a hockey player um so we work with a bunch of professional athletes and across the board these investors are much happier with a 10 to 12% return than if they were being offered 18 to 20% because again, they, they wouldn't feel like it was too good to be true.
1: Describe for me what that shift was like. I mean, obviously you know multifamily, you know all of the questions and answers surrounding the raising of capital, but what did it look like for you to have to shift your avatar to tech people? Like how much of the content you're creating had to change and what sort of mindset shifts did you have to go through?
0: Uh, tremendous. Um, because my, again, for 10 years, I was focused on real estate people. So what did I talk about? What did I write about? What did I, what was I publishing? It was real estate content. It was how to flip houses. I mean, you can look how to flip houses, how to estimate rehab costs, how to negotiate real estate. Um, it's, it's all the tactical stuff that a real estate investor might care about. But once I switched the avatar, my, my, my investor avatar, I had to switch what I was talking about because that didn't interest them. What they cared about was how things going on in the world, whether it's economic, whether it's industry related, whether it's political, whatever, how is that gonna impact their investment if they were to invest in real estate? How does real estate work, not from a nuts and bolts, tactical, nitty gritty day to day standpoint, how does real estate work from an investment standpoint? And so what I started writing a whole lot more about was macroeconomic climate and political risks and economic risks of real estate. Uh, What makes the the value of real estate go up and down? How do cap rates work? Um, Just those things that, that people that aren't in the real estate world, but are thinking about investing in real estate want to understand because they feel like if I understand this, I can mitigate some of my risks and I can sleep better at night.
1: What was the emotional impact of having to make that shift? Was it like, hey, this is new, therefore it's exciting? Or was this like, oh my gosh, like I have literally got to retool everything to answer all these new slate of problems?
0: Well, it was daunting because again, what I had done for 10 years was just what came naturally. I'd get up in the morning, I'd be like, what do I feel like writing about? Okay, I feel like writing about how does direct mail marketing campaigns work? So I'd write about direct mail marketing campaigns. And the next day I'd wake up and I'd say, well, what do I feel like writing about today? Today I feel like how to negotiate a a seller finance deal. Um, For the first time, I couldn't just wake up and say, okay, I'm going to write whatever I want to write about. I had to think strategically. I had to think, and again, this goes back to telling a story. How do I write the next 10 blog posts or the next 10 articles or the next 10 social media posts in a way that it's telling a coherent story that goes from introducing my potential investors to this idea of investing and then driving them through that funnel of building trust and building knowledge and building comfort with it, not only investing, but investing with me. And so it really forced me to start planning more. Um, and again, in, instead of just waking up every day and writing what I felt like writing, I plan a month out or two months out. And I knew exactly what the the, the writing schedule was gonna look like because I was building something. Um, and I was hoping people were reading in order um, because again, that's how I was building trust with them.
1: Have you hit critical mass on the tech space for capital raising, or are you still in that process?
0: Absolutely not. Um, so um, I, I'm fortunate that, again, I, I had a foothold in that, that industry. Um, I still do some advising to, to some tech companies. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was invited out to Google to speak to, to their investing club. I've spoken to Microsoft and Amazon's investing club. Um, so I feel like I've, I've, I've made some inroads. Um, but the nice thing is it's a huge industry. And it's an industry that there's a lot of money. Um, there are a lot of people that are accredited, which basically in, in this industry means they, they need the financial qualifications mm-hmm. to invest with me. Um, so there's, while I have made some inroads, there's a huge untapped market there that, uh, that, that's ripe for, for growing our business as, as big as we want.
1: So unlimited landscape left. You're, you're in the process of honing and getting it to a place where you could just wake up in the morning and write as freely as you did. Take me back to learning. Like, I mean, assuming someone says, you know what, my gifts are like Jay's gifts. But like, you still have to have a lot of knowledge to be able to get up and just write an intelligent article every single day on the fly. Like, what was your process for acquiring the amount of knowledge necessary to do that?
0: So there's a lot of times where I've literally, there's a topic that's in the news, a topic that people want to hear about, and I'll say, okay, I need to go learn about that topic so that I can teach it. And I will spend five or 10 hours researching a topic that I knew nothing about um, so that, that I could turn around and write an article that sounded like I was the expert. And, and so there's, there's some of that, it sounds like the fake it till you make it, but it wasn't really because five or 10 hours of research, when you put that together with kind of the, the rest of my, my background knowledge, um, I really was an expert compared to most people. Um, And so it's funny because a lot of people think that, that how do you know so much about so many things? And what they don't realize is that a lot of this stuff that I'm learning in real time. Yeah. I, I, I have an MBA, I have an economics background, so I have the, the basics. Um, but like understanding the nitty gritty um, of, of how, like how, how things work, you can't know everything, but you spend a couple hours studying and, and researching and reading articles and, and, um, and, and then you turn around, it's not hard to write a thousand word article that kind of synthesizes everything that you've just read for the last few hours um, because people aren't necessarily looking for you to give them something new and exciting and, and oh my God, this is, this is a novel take on, on a subject that's been around for hundreds of years. No, people just want to understand how does the yield curve work? What does an inverted yield curve mean? What is a, what's, What are treasury bonds? What's what's the relationship between bonds and interest rates and things like that, basic stuff. But for some reason, nobody writes about it. And you could go out and, and I mean, you're a smart guy, but somebody who's not smart could go out and spend three hours reading about bonds and, and figure out what they are and how they work and how they relate to interest rates. And then go out and write an article and look like a genius.
1: How do you manage the time load? I mean, like, obviously you're not spending five or 10 hours on every article every day, but I mean, someone's working a full-time job or they're, let's say they're a real estate agent or investor, they have to do that for most of the day, but they love content. How how were you able to accomplish the daily writing and get it done?
0: You need to be inquisitive. So for me, it's, even if I wasn't writing, I'd still be reading. I still want to know about, everything related to macroeconomics. I wanna know everything related to investing. I wanna know everything related to geopolitical issues and how they impact industries and markets because at the end of the day, that's how I make my money. So even if I weren't writing about it, I still need to know this stuff because I'm an investor and these things are important to me. Um, It just so happens that if I know that stuff, I can write about it. Um, And so for me, it's not a chore. It's really, it's something I'd be doing anyway, at least the learning part. Um, and then just taking that learning part. Uh, I I mean, I found that writing is kind of like a muscle. Um, the more you do it, the better you get. I'm not a natural writer, um, but I've written so much that literally I can just sit down and, and this is what I I'll tell people also, I mean, writing is something that it's so easy these days. You have a cell phone, pick up your cell phone. I go on a walk every morning. I do a few mile walk every morning just to, to get some exercise, clear my head. And I will literally sit there and just talk into my phone, into the notepad application um and it's basically I'm, I'm i'm dictating whatever that article is i'm going to write that day or that week um, and i'm doing it on on my walk in the morning and all i have to do is basically send that to myself uh, by email and i can either have my uh, somebody that works for me formatted or i'll do it myself um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sitting in the, in, I'm in the shower, like when I'm in the shower, I'm thinking and like, literally I'm, I'm just, I'll hit record on my phone outside the, I keep my phone outside of the shower and I'll hit record and I'll just start talking into my phone and dictating into my phone. Um, it, it's, it's just, there's plenty of time if, if you can, if you can use it well.
1: So you, you're being a tech guy. Has Chat GPT entered the equation for you in formatting your articles and expanding your content creation?
0: No, I've I've played around with it, and what I found is that um, I, I have a very I don't want to say unique because we all have unique voice, but I, I have a, a voice that um, a lot of people if I if if I put out content that I didn't write, people would know. Um, people have told me that, that they can recognize my content very quickly because I just have a certain writing style and, uh, chat GBT, two things. One can't replicate my writing style, at least not yet. Um, and number two, I tend to be a little bit more detail oriented than, chat GPT will, will spit out. I, I tend to focus more on the, the nitty gritty of stuff than the high level of stuff. And so um, I, I haven't been successful getting chat GPT to kind of spit out the, the types of details that, that I really want it to. It would take me longer to give it the, uh, the, the prompts to spit out what I want it to than just to write it myself.
1: Cool. I want to go back to something you said. You said, it's how I make my money in terms of your curiosity. So I want to understand deeper your relationship with curiosity. Are you curious because it's the thing that makes you money or would you be curious either way?
0: Um, I am a naturally inquisitive person. I I like to understand things. And what I've noticed is that the people that are most successful tend to be the ones that are most inquisitive um, because they don't stop at okay, they don't stop at, okay, I have enough information, I I don't need to dig deeper. Um, They're the same people that will get a business going and and get it to 50% efficiency, they'll be making some money and then they'll say, okay, I can just kind of coast from here. inquisitiveness is something that like if you've got it you're gonna you're gonna keep pushing until you've eked out every ounce of efficiency and every ounce of detail and you're gonna keep trying to get better and better and better uh, whether you're learning something or building something or doing something and I've just noticed that the best engineers tend to be the ones that are the most inquisitive because they never stop and say that's good enough uh, they have to keep going until until they've they've kind of sucked out every last percent of, of efficiency in whatever they're doing right so you threw
1: me a curveball earlier in one of the best ways possible which was essentially you tied the simplification of an idea taking things from complex to simple and you related its empathy you essentially related it to a positive attribute or someone that doesn't have it may lack that attribute so i would like to tie some attributes together one when we're talking about curiosity is curiosity born from like a servant or s- selfless nature in the sense that you're trying to connect? Like like if you were to connect curiosity to a, a core personality trait, how would you connect that concept?
0: Um, I, I think curiosity, a lot of it is, um, I'm trying to think the best word, um, to some degree, insecurity, um, to some degree, um, um, an acknowledgement that we know so very little. Um, I, I there's a, There are a lot of us that, um, and, and it's the best way to say this, there are a lot of us who think we know everything. And if you ask my wife, she'd probably accuse me of, 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 <laughs> of thinking I know everything. But... I also, if, if I, I recognize that while I might portray sometimes that I know a whole lot and I, I, I've even said I like to be the smartest guy in the room a lot of times, at the same time, um, I recognize that I know so little about anything. We all know so little about anything. And so um, being inquisitive is really an attempt to, to build the confidence that I'm portraying. I want to be the guy that knows everything. I want to be the, the smartest guy in the room, but I realize I'm not. And um, and the, the inquisitiveness forces me to kind of keep learning and, and keep building the knowledge and the skills and 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 the, the expertise uh, so that I can be more comfortable portraying that that role of the smartest guy in the room.
1: I love That this. makes any sense. Yeah, and I wanted to go down this road a little bit because I just got off a podcast where we were interviewing an Israeli immigrant. And we, I asked him essentially what... Does the Israelis have mindset-wise that the Americans don't? And he said, really, they don't really have a way of describing that something isn't possible to do. And because they don't they don't have that, they're forced to be in creativity to solve problems, right? They're forced to be curious. And, you know, I, I think as the the economy's moving, as things are shifting, curiosity is gonna save a lot of people if they have it. So um, if you guys are out there listening, like take notes of some of this stuff because it because it matters. So Let's say you had a billion dollars in the bank and 100 lifetimes of cash flows. Money is no object. Does your life change at all? How do you structure your freedom?
0: No. At this point, um, so it's funny. I grew up with very little. um, And I I think I will forever have that mindset of I'm always scared of losing everything. Um, I, I go through life kind of, I will never be confident that I'm financially secure no matter how much money I have. Um, and so part of that manifests itself in, in, a, in some bad ways. Like I work probably too much because I have this irrational fear that if I take too long off, um, it's the, the, the fate is going to conspire to take everything away from me. Um, and so I can't do that. And my wife hates that about me. She's like, look, you've worked this hard and, uh, you should be able to go on vacation for a week and not take your computer. And, and she's right. I should. And it's funny. It's not so much that I'm a workaholic, but more that I'm just terrified that if mm-hmm. I take a week off, um, I'm kind of tempting fate to, to, to strip it off, strip all the success away. Um, so, so number one, I don't think I'll ever stop working. Um, but one of the things I've recognized is, um, how fortunate, I am um, and how it's a waste of success and a waste of good fortune um, if I don't use what I've accomplished to give back. Um, and so for me, it's it's I won't stop working, but I very much uh, these days tie my success, I, I much less tie my success to the amount of money that I'm making um, than I do to what I feel like I'm accomplishing. And those things that I want to accomplish, one, I, I'm, I'm very competitive. So in the business world, I do want to build a bigger business. I want to get uh, a higher assets under management number, more units. Um, I want to make more money. Most importantly, I want to make more money for my investors. That's certainly important. But there's also bigger things these days. I want to give away as much money as I can. Um, I want to be able to, my my partner and I often talk about, um, she has a tremendous love of animals and so do I. And we often talk about like we want to build a foundation that um, her goal is to get rid of kill shelters um, for, for pets, for dogs and cats. Um, and she's basically laid out this business plan for a a whole transportation network that will take animals and kill shelters from one part of the country to other parts of the country where there's higher adoption rates and lower, Mm -hmm. lower kill rates. And, 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 um, she's estimated that, that for a hundred million dollars, we can potentially, um, like get rid of, of like kill shelters in this country. And so that's kind of been, our goal is to accumulate enough money that we can actually build that out and make a a discernible difference in the world. And so for me, it's, it's, again, it's, it's, I'm never going to stop working. Um, but I would like to think that over the next several years, it's going to be working less for me and working more to actually give back and, and improve the world.
1: What a cool vision. What does the next 12 to 18 looks like months look like for Jay?
0: Um, same stuff. Uh, I think we're in an interesting economic time right now. Um, So I think over the next 12 to 18 months is going to be very much uh, keeping my my finger on the pulse of the economy um, and trying to ensure that uh, the assets that we currently have are are operating well and continuing to make money and are free of risk or at least minimize risk um, while at the same time, I have a feeling there'll be some good opportunities in in real estate in the next 12 to 18 months and try and figure out where those will be and, and, and exploit some of those opportunities before other people can.
1: Absolutely. My goodness, Jay, this was incredible. Like guys listening, I mean, he broke down how to make things more simple. He broke down how the path to write five books and to run all these assets and how to structure sales. Like there was so much sales advice in here that wasn't even packaged up as sales advice. So guys, if you're listening, take note, write something down that you learned, share it with somebody know so they can hold you accountable as freedom is acquired one action at a time. And as you take steps day after day, you move towards freedom. And before you know it, you guys are living a life of freedom and purpose. Thank you guys for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode.